We're going to be in Acts chapter 23, starting with verse 1. But before we do that, we're going to turn to the proverb of the day, and that's going to be in Proverbs 1. I believe we covered the first part of Proverbs uh, last week about what the Proverbs were for, wisdom literature in the scripture, and now I'm just going to continue through the rest of chapter 1. So it's going to be Proverbs chapter 1, starting with verse 10. He says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions or wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. This is a a picture of, it's, it's actually titled, Avoid Bad Company. My son, if sinners entice you. When people are destined to do evil, a lot of times they don't want to do it themselves. (laughs) They want other people to join in it with them. And this is, I guess you could say, a conspiracy. Come with us. Let us lie in wait to shed blood. And they lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. And we're going to see how, and I try to tie in the proverb of the day with the uh, New Testament study that we're doing, and we're going to see how it ties in. Verse 15 He says, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owner. And you see, in the end, the evil, they get trapped in their own trap. We saw that with Haman. He died on the same gallows that he tried to kill Mordecai on. And we see that. We see that Judas, Judas had an ignominious death in the end. And so it is with anyone who practices evil. Now, sometimes in this world, the evil will get tripped up. They'll either get arrested or they'll, uh, they'll die or something will happen to them. But we know that even if it doesn't happen in this life, there's always the judgment. God is the great equalizer. He says their feet run to evil. And they lie in wait for their own blood, and they don't realize it. What happens is when you practice evil, you end up harming yourself in the end. Surely are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes the life of its owner. And we're going to see how uh, in Paul's ministry, he was innocent. And they did. They lied in wait for him. They, they, They conspired against him. And in the end, it was only to their own demise and to their own detriment. And whether it's a promotion Okay, you know, those of you who are in the business world, um, if you've been in the business world for any period of time, when it's time for somebody to get promoted, <laughs> often the coworkers are suspicious of each other. Some coworkers will do something or sell somebody out for a lousy promotion, right, a few thousand uh, dollars at the end of the year, or some type of money or some type of even ministerial position. And we're even going to see in the scripture here that politics... Uh, an agenda do play in the supposed ecclesiastical world, and we're going to cover that. So the last time we saw, I'm just going to set you up for that, the last time we saw the Apostle Paul's defense before the crowd, 
If you weren't here, he related his conversion experience, and everything looked good. The crowd was almost eating out of his hand. He was explaining a supernatural uh, visitation from God and what his commission was. And as soon as Paul mentioned the word, God told me to go to the Gentiles, well, it all went down, downhill from there. Okay, they wanted his blood. So Paul is then arrested. Uh, he's speaking Hebrew. The Roman guards that are, that are kind of looking at the whole situation, maybe they don't understand what he's saying. All of a sudden he says something and these people want to kill him. So the Romans rush in, they take Paul, they bind him, they bring him in, and the commander sets him up to be flogged, to be beat. And the Roman beating was, was merciless, and that's how they would extract confessions out of their prisoners. So Paul narrowly escapes the Roman flogging by saying, hey, you know, you've arrested me and bounded me, and you're going to flog me. I'm, a, I'm an uncondemned Roman citizen. And we talked about the rights that Roman citizens have. Okay, and we could look at that in historical sources. Today we're going to see Paul's defense before the Jewish leaders. So what I'm going to do is start with verse, uh, actually chapter 22, the last verse 30, which kind of gives you a little explanation, and then move into chapter 23. So verse 30, Acts 22, verse 30. It says, the next day, because he, meaning the Roman commander, wanted to know for certain why he, meaning the Apostle Paul, was accused by the Jews. And again, there was a whole church filled with Jewish believers. This was actually a group of Jewish people who didn't believe in the Messiah, but they were scores that did believe in the Messiah. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So this, this Roman commander has a problem. What am I going to do with Paul? He's an arrested and bound and uncondemned Roman citizen. He's got a problem on his hands. So what he does is, and this is really uncharacteristic of a Roman commander to call the council the Jewish Sanhedrin. And for the most part, the Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to run the affairs locally of their own people. So the Roman commander gets them all together, the Sanhedrin, to assemble, and he wants to see, what does the council think of Paul? Maybe if they found some charge against Paul, uh, the Romans can, can, can continue with the legal process. And maybe if there wasn't a charge against Paul, Maybe they can let him go, uh, support a reason to release. But either way, the Roman commander had to do something with Paul. And he says, verse 1, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And then Paul gets assaulted. Kind of doesn't make sense. Why did this happen? Well, maybe a little history will help you. I like to put history in so you can kind of get a whole picture of what's going on in that time. According to the Talmud, which is a Jewish rabbinical source, and Josephus, which was a Roman source, so you have two sources here, Ananias was the Jewish high priest between A.D. 48 and A.D. 59. He was described by both accounts as a brutal man, he was greedy, and his loyalties lied with Rome and not his own Jewish people. As a matter of fact, historical, during the Jewish revolt of A.D. 66, Ananias fled because he knew that the insurrectionists and the Jewish guerrillas were not going to be favorable upon him because of his loyalties to Rome. So Ananias flees, and the Jewish guerrillas find him hiding in an aqueduct in Herod's palace, and that's where they slaughtered him. So that, that was his death. Ananias, we know in the future, certainly didn't live a good, in a good conscience before God. But the question is, why was Paul struck? 
Well, often if you're living a clean life, you will be a threat to somebody who's not living a clean life. Now, there were doctrinal issues between Paul and the council, but the bottom line is there was a bigger spiritual issue. Okay? Paul lived a clean life, and these men did not. Paul was a threat to the religious establishment, much the way Jesus and John the Baptist and the Old Testament prophets were, and most of them, history tells us, were killed by the religious system. And you too, if you're living a good and clear conscience before your God, you will still be a threat to those who want to do evil. We read this in Proverbs 1 just now. It says they lie in in secret. They lurk for the innocent to shed their blood. Why? There's a spiritual issue there. They're evil. This person is innocent, and they're looking to go after him. Now, I want to digress a little bit and talk about the conscience. What is the conscience? Paul uses the word 21 times in his letters. According to the dictionary, number one, the conscience is a knowledge of or sense of right and wrong with an urge to do right. Moral judgment that opposes the violation of a previously recognized ethical principle and that leads to feelings of guilt if one violates such a principle. Conscience, second definition, inner thoughts or feeling. Wearsby, who's a noted... uh, Bible commentator says this, the conscience doesn't set the standard, the conscience applies the standard. So I'm trying to build this up so you understand what the conscience is. Dr. Scott Taransky, who's also a pastor, further sums up the conscience based on the biblical paradigm or biblical model in four parts. The conscience, according to the scripture, number one, causes us to do what's right. Number two, causes us to deal with or corrects the wrongs that we've committed. Number three, the conscience pushes us to want to be honest. And number four, the conscience causes us to care about others or provide charity. It's kind of hard if you're a believer, especially a believer where you have a higher standard, to look at someone who's destitute and just say, hey, you'll be okay and ignore them. It should bother our conscience, shouldn't it? Some biblical examples of an aberrant conscience or a conscience gone awry a defiled or weak conscience, 1 Corinthians 8, 7, if you're taking notes. You can have an evil conscience, Hebrews 10, 22, or a seared conscience, 1 Timothy 4, 2. And then the question becomes, and some will ask, is the Holy Spirit our conscience? The answer is no. Number one, some unbelievers sadly have a higher standard or a higher, um, clearer conscience than some believers. The second thing is... Um, that more importantly, the Bible tells us as believers, we have the ability to quench or to grieve the Holy Spirit if we choose that path. You see, the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with our conscience as believers if we choose to walk in the Spirit. And what does the Apostle Paul say? We could either fulfill the lusts of the flesh or we can walk in the Spirit. You can't be doing both at the same time. You're either going to go with what the Spirit says or you're going to walk in the lusts of the flesh. Where are we today in light of understanding that conscience? Let's just kind of wrap it up here. Number one, as a Christian, we're held to a higher standard because we should know better. As a matter of fact, you talk about no one should have a double standard, right? Would everybody agree that you shouldn't have a double standard for people? Okay, just set you up. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, in a nutshell that you shouldn't keep company with grievous sinners. And Paul stops himself and says, but 
I'm not talking about those people in the world, because you would have to go out of the world to get away from sinners, now wouldn't you? The Apostle Paul says this, don't keep company with someone who is named a believer and is divisive or a fornicator or a drunkard, meaning, meaning somebody who continues to practice these things. Paul says don't even eat with such a person. So the Apostle Paul sets a double standard for believers who are behaving poorly and who are in persistent sin. Paul says, don't hang around with those people. But in the world, I'm not telling you to stay away from them. As a matter of fact, we should be salt and light to the world. The second point is, can we look intently at another and declare what Paul declared? Men and brethren, brothers and sisters, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. Now, I believe the Greek word is atenosos, which I have to do a little bit more study, but I believe that's a precursor to our attention or intently. Uh, and the fact that the word is used in the first part of the sentence in the original Greek means that that's where the emphasis is. So what happens is Paul is looking at them, and he's, he's looking at them like I'm looking at you right now. He's got a fixed gaze, and he's looking at them intently, and he says, men and brethren, and he tells them that thing. So my question is, as believers, could we do the same thing? Can I look at you, Russ, and look at you intently and say, Russ, I could tell you right now, in all good conscience before my God, I have a solid marriage. I believe I can do that. Can I look at you, George, and look at you directly in the eye intently and say, George, I can tell you as God is my witness up to this point, in good conscience, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I'm honest with my finances. And that's the question, folks. Can we look at another brother or sister or even someone who's not a brother or sister and look at them intently and say to them, in all good conscience before God is my witness, I have lived a clean life. And why is that important? Because that's, that opens the door. Now we're going to see that these men were so hardened that they didn't accept it from Paul. They, but it, it was convicting because they had Paul struck. But what that does is you open the door to share the gospel when your character is good. People don't care what you have to say if you're living as a hypocrite. You have to be able to look at them, and, all, and that doesn't mean we don't sin. For those of you who don't know the scripture very well, you may have come in here, and maybe you're not familiar with the Bible, it doesn't mean I don't sin. Okay, there's a difference there. There's a difference. It doesn't mean that Paul didn't sin. But it opens the door if your character is good, and you can look at somebody in the eye without darting your eyes back and forth and being uncomfortable to look him in the eye and say that in all seriousness, it opens the door for you to be able to share the gospel. And we're going to see what happens with the Apostle Paul here. Verse 3. Then Paul said to him, <laughs> he's not happy. He says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And Paul was quoting the law in Exodus 22:28. This is hypocrisy in religion. The rules are for you to follow, but they're not for me to follow. Do as I say but don't do as I do. That's what's going on here. Both, interestingly enough, Deuteronomy 19.15 and Leviticus 19.15 address proper judgment. It addresses the jurisprudence system according to God's law. Okay, And these guys weren't following it. He says, you whitewashed tomb. What is that? Well, if you follow history... The tombs in those days, would they could have been anywhere. If it was a poor person, they would kind of put them in a box somewhere and, and have a shallow grave, an unmarked grave, 
And the Jewish people were very careful, according to the law, not to touch a dead body because that would defile them ceremonially. And they'd have to go through this process before they could worship in a ceremonial fashion. So what they would do was to avoid accidentally touching something that could have defiled them, they would whitewash these graves. Probably was a lime solution that they would take with a brush and just go over it. So it was obvious. The second thing that it did, it made something that was kind of ugly, that it was filled with dead bodies, look a little bit better. So it was for appearance and also not to defile the person. As a matter of fact, Jesus calls the religious leaders whitewashed tombs also in uh, Matthew 23. Religious hypocrisy, quote, what you see isn't what you get. A man preaches on Sunday and he's beating or cheating on his wife on Monday. And of course, religious hypocrisy comes in all forms. Unfortunately, I spend a fair amount of time when I meet somebody who's not familiar with the word of God and they have all these speed bumps or, or chaff that they put out like blockades. You can't get to my heart because that person's a hypocrite and this person's a hypocrite. And unfortunately, I spend a lot of my time trying to deprogram them because they follow those who are representatives of God and they're not living the right life. So they have a, a warped picture of Jesus based on uh, Jesus's representatives, so to speak. Remember, Jesus spent more time with searching sinners who were open than those who were religious and thought that they arrived at some type of spiritual nirvana. Verse 5. Now, there's an interesting exchange here because it does seem like Paul's pretty, you know, it's an imperative here. He's upset. Uh, he probably said this with some amount of force. Uh, and then it almost seems like he backpedals when he says, oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. Now, this is just for those of you who study the Bible uh, a lot and you say, well, I don't understand the exchange here. It is possible that, you know, Paul was out of the loop for a while. Paul was on missionary trips. It's possible that um, he didn't recognize the high priest. Remember, the Roman uh, commander called the the Sanhedrin together kind of hastily. The high priest maybe didn't have his ephod and turban and his robes on. They could have all come in plain clothes, so to speak. Uh, there's speculation or you know, good amount of evidence in the scripture that Paul had trouble with his eyesight. Uh, taking all these together and the vile behavior that the high priest exhibited, Paul was like, who's this guy? You know, you're a whitewashed tomb. And they said, that's the high priest. Oh, <laughs> so I'm not supposed to be speak evil of the high priest. What is interesting is that Paul may have been immediately conciliatory, not for the man because he was a hypocrite, but for the office. He respected the office. So, verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They mostly comprised this Jewish council or the Sanhedrin. They were two of the major Jewish, Jewish sects back then, in addition to the Essenes, uh, who were like the sort of like monks. They, they cloistered themselves, the Zealots, who were looking to overthrow Rome, and the Herodians, which were more of the ruling class. But what was Paul's strategy? Well, apparently his personal testimony didn't work. He got punched in the mouth or smacked in the mouth. So he's trying plan B, which is the doctrinal approach. Now, understand the division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you have an idea of what's going on here. Both groups were religious leaders, okay? The Sadducees, according to history and the scripture, they were more of the aristocratic. They were the upper crust. 
They were political. Probably in a lot of ways they were sycophantic, and they also, you could consider them the modern day, or what we would consider the modernists. Now the Pharisees, on the other hand, were uh, self-righteous, they were legalistics, and we could consider them the quasi-fundamentalists. But neither did much to bring the common folk to God, and that was a problem. And the introduction of the resurrection that Paul is speaking of causes a division between the two groups because one of them vehemently denied spirits or angels or supernatural, which was the Sadducees, but the Pharisees said, no, 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 we believe in all that. So right away they they caused a division between these two groups of people. And unfortunately today many Christians are doing the same thing. They're not sticking with the word of God. They're not in the business to reconcile God to man with the good news of salvation. They're focusing on extraneous issues instead of the Lord's great commission, which is to go out and make disciples of the nation. And that's the primary function of any religious institution. And that's something that I I feel very strongly of. And as a matter of fact, we redid our bulletin a little bit, if you've noticed, and we moved some things around. And there's a section, actually, that says, how can I apply God's word to my life this week? It's a small section, okay? Because I think it's very important, as any church, as any pastor, our primary function has to be reconciling God to his uh, creation and also to, for us to be built up in the word of God. Now, it, this isn't put here so, you know, I'm saying, hey, you guys better do this because I say so, but because it's good. Not only do you take notes about what you've learned, but also to take God's word and to be able to apply it to your life is important. And you'll notice in... You know, we, we talk about the Greek, we talk about history, we talk about you kind of get a well-rounded education on Sunday, but the bottom line is I always go back to the simple things. Again, if, you, if you're not familiar with the Bible and you're not familiar with what Christianity is all about, put everything aside and understand this, that we are sinners. That's just, it's just it. Me, you, we're all sinners. And God has a problem, or actually we had a bigger problem. God loves us and wants us to be reconciled to him, but our problem is that as sinners, we can't be in his presence. Uh, so would God devised this awesome plan, uh, awesome for us, but not necessarily for him at the time, to send his only son to come in the form of a man, fully God and fully man. And really, he taught us great things and he did miracles, but the biggest thing, Jesus said, I came to die. That was his, his primary function. Because the only way that we could be reconciled back to God was, was a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus provided that. On that tree, on that cross, he bled willingly, and he shed his blood for the remission of our sins. And when we believe on him, on that sacrifice, it's already paid for. So God sees us as him, as his perfect reputation is imputed to us, and our sins were put on him on that tree. So there kind of was a switch going on there. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's very simple. I don't have to use big words. Um, I don't have to use, you know, uh, deep, deep things or meaty things. Anybody can understand that. And that's the way God made it. So we all could be reconciled to him. Young, old, educated, uneducated, black, white. It doesn't matter who you are. We all have the same standard by which we enter heaven. And that's a fair standard. You know, there's a bunch of religions that say you do this and you can get into heaven, you do that. Now, how fair would that be is if we went to heaven and we had a heavy standard that we had to follow and we finally just made it into heaven and that group over there had an easy standard. That's why God made it a very simple standard that we all can get in equally. Understand? Verse 9. Then, those, then there arose a loud outcry and the scribes who were of the Pharisees' party 
arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So what we see here is the scribes are kind of getting into the melee. The scribes kind of, they were another separate group, but they were part of the Pharisee party. Uh, they were the lawyers. You know, they, they helped you to understand the whole legal aspects of God's law. And they also were the copyists. They would, you know write the, the scriptures and, and make sure they did a perfect job in copying the scriptures because they didn't have the printing press yet. So the, so the scribes are getting involved too and they say, we find no evil in this man. Now, probably um, you could see that this was more doctrinally expedient uh, for the scribes and the Pharisees than really want to let Paul go. You know, there was a dissension between them and the Pharisees or them and the Sadducees and they're saying, listen, this, we find no evil in this man because it bolsters their doctrine against the Sadducees' doctrine. In verse 10, it said he would have been pulled to pieces had not the Romans gotten involved and, and broke it up. It's kind of sad when we see that this is how spiritual men behaved. You've got a Roman pagan commander who's probably a polytheist who worships all these gods, right? And what he's doing is uh, he sees this thing going on and he gets his men in there to save Paul. But these are all religious men. I can't imagine the Roman commander saying, wow, look at all these religious men beating each other up. Sign me up for monotheism. You know what I'm saying? I don't think it was going to happen. And, and, and as a Christian example, we have to see the same thing. When we as God's representatives are engaging in bad behavior, it's always to the detriment of the cause of Christ. You know, Paul says that we're ambassadors. Just think of a country, the United States, that sends its ambassadors. That's a position of honor to another country to represent the United States. I'm sure they try, at least, to pick good men and women of good character who really understand what it means to be an American to another country to represent that country or to represent us. And we're ambassadors to Christ. When we act foolish or when we engage in carnal behavior, what happens is nobody around us is really interested in the cause of Christ. Now, can God use somebody else? Absolutely. If we choose to act that way, God can put us aside and use somebody else in our stead. But understand that you know, our behavior is very important. Okay? We should want to set a good example. Verse 11. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem... So you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, be of good cheer. Jesus said that uh, when he walked the earth with his disciples. And that basically meant take courage. It's going to be okay, Paul. Now, it kind of seems humorous considering the chaos that was going on. <laughs> Probably was um, like one of those talk shows where everybody's fighting, you know, and it's in a religious circle and the Romans come in. It's just a crazy night. Uh, and, you know, the Lord appears to Paul and says, hey, everything's great. Everything's great. This is a disaster. But God's encouragement is always there when we need it. Paul was not immune to discouragement, and it probably was at a high point here, and that's why the Lord appeared to him. We look at Paul as he's Superman, but he's human just like we were. Now, there's two points to take from this. Number one, God often swoops in and saves the day when we need it most. And we can be assured, as Philippians 1.6 says, that we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
It often happens in the proverbial 11th hour that the Lord comes in and saves the day. And I think a lot of times he does that to to test our faith and to build our character. And he's not going to let us fall. He's going to continue to its completion what he started in us. Hang in there. So I don't know what you're going through today. Some of you, it could be finances. You know, I've been praying. Some of you, it could be a, a health issue. But you know what? God is not going to just let you languish. He's going to come in there, and he's going to be there for you like he was to Paul. He doesn't love you and me any less than he loved the apostle Paul or the disciples. It doesn't work like that. And that kind of brings me to my next point, too. Often our ears are open the widest to God's voice when our lives are in chaos. See, when things go good, we could sing that, or when things go bad, excuse me, we could sing that song, you know, that famous song, Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, you know, I just can't do it anymore. Take the wheel, Jesus, you know, be, be Lord in my life, drive the car. And then when things get better and we're feeling our oats, it's usually we look over at Jesus and say, haven't you driven long enough? You're hogging up the steering wheel. How about moving over and let me take over? And that's kind of what happens. You know, that's the way we are as human beings. We start to feel better. We start to feel our oats. And now we say, you know what, Jesus, I can handle it from this point on. And I want to encourage you to try to listen to his voice in whatever state you're in today. And you probably expect me to say, hey, if you're going through a hard time, listen to his voice. But I'm also going to tell you this. If you're going through a good time and life is good for you, you know, and there's money in the bank and your, uh, your marriage is going good and your kids are behaving, right? And you're going on vacation and you're doing all these things, okay? Everything's great. You're, you're getting along with everybody. Listen to his voice because that's the time that we tend to tune them out. You know, these little interference there. What, Jesus? Everything's pretty good right now. You know, so I would say in the bad times and especially the good times, listen for his voice. Verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Another point is that, um, you know, if you have 40 assassins in your life that are coming after you and you've done nothing wrong, okay, go back to Proverbs 1, you know, trust the Lord. And it's not always, we, we think in terms of what we feel and our emotions. If times are, are rough, sometimes we feel, you know, maybe I did something wrong or things are going bad, what's going on here? And when sometimes times are good, again, like I said before, uh, we think maybe we're okay. But in Paul's life, he was always being chased by somebody. Okay? He had 40 assassins that bound themselves neither to eat nor drink. And I'm sure as they got hungry and thirsty, they were all the more looking to kill him. So if you have 40 assassins in your life, um, it, it's not always a sign that you're doing something wrong. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, blessed are those who are being persecuted for righteousness sake. Right. So there's another plot to kill Paul. And not only were their fanatics, but they ended up getting the religious establishment involved. They were all in cahoots together. And sometimes we as Christians, the more, the, the, the more mature I become as a Christian, the more I read, the more I, years go by as a Christian, I, I try not to sit in judgment that much of people. And they're just humans like we are. They probably thought they were doing the Lord a favor. We talked about terrorism last week. But 
you know, some of the worst plottings have been hatched by those that bear the Christian name. Look at history. Look at the history of the church. Some of the, most, the worst atrocities were committed by Christians, right? So I don't know that we could sit in judgment on these people uh, too much. When politics and position and agenda take precedence over God's word, that's when we see the church to die, start to die spiritually. And I'm sure in the news there's a lot of... Um, you know, they're showing a lot of clips of different pastors from different churches, maybe some controversial situations. And it's really sad because a lot of what they're talking about is politics. From this pulpit, they're talking about opinion. They're talking about politics. And you know what? I try to keep that out because it's really got to be all about God's word. And then it becomes, you know, God's going to hold us accountable as men of God when we stand behind this pulpit and what comes out of our mouths because we're supposed to be representing him. That's important. I just was wondering how long it took these conspirators before they actually got something to drink and something to eat, because obviously Paul survived. (laughs) Verse 16. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the young centurions or one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, Tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. This is probably the saddest theme in the last two chapters. The pagan Roman commander acted with more integrity than these religious men. Again, back to Proverbs 1. But you see also sovereignty and insignificance and how they can work together. And it almost seems like it's a paradox or there are contradictions in terms. But God's sovereignty and our insignificance. God used, God had a plan. He told Paul. And when God tells you something... He sure, be sure he will fulfill it in your life. We talked about Philippians 1.6. God told Paul, you did a good job. He commended him for witnessing in Jerusalem. He goes, now you're going to go to Rome. And you can take that to the bank, so to speak. So no matter what's going on around Paul, God promised me that I'm going to go to Rome. Now, he used a young man, Paul's uh, nephew, to really uncover the plot and to go boldly to the Roman commander and tell him, hey, this is what's going on. Now, a young lad in those days didn't have real significance uh, in the Roman world, uh, and this little insignificant guy God used, and he put him in here in the Bible for us to read about, to actually thwart the the plot to destroy Paul. So when you think of yourself, and I even think of myself, I said, boy, I'm pretty insignificant. There's a lot of people on the planet. It's a big world. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm like this, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. But it's amazing how God can use you, if you're open to, uh, to make his plans come true. And it comes down to this. The question is, what are you trusting in? Is it religion? Well, chapter 23 is replete with the failings of religious men and the failings of a religious system. We really see that all throughout the chapter. What is true religion? Well, a few scriptures, James 1.27 tells us that true religious people are those that look out for the underprivileged, to the, for the needy, the widows and the orphans, and to be uncorrupted by this world. There's a lot of corrupting influences in the world for us to be uncorrupted. 
James 2.16 tells us that if we say we have faith and we see somebody destitute and we ignore them, you know, what's going on there? Okay, that's not really, you know, are we really people of faith? Where is your faith? And in James 4.17, you know, I may even do James after Acts. This is a really good book. But in James 4.17, it says, To him who knows to do good, and he can do good, and he does not do it to him, that is sin. Those are called sins of omission. If God has given you the power to do something good, true religion is to actually do it and not ignore what God has called you to do. And 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us to lead a quiet life, to work with our hands, and to mind our own business. Now, understand this. If we are following religion and looking at, oh, Pastor Joe said, I have to do this, this, and this because the Bible said it. We can be religious and just look at it as I'm going to put myself into a set of rules. I'm going to fall in line with what the rules say. You know, do this, don't do that. And then we become Pharisees. Or in John chapter 7, Jesus said this. He says, he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters. And then like the Bible says, like, um, you know, God says to us that if our heart is right, and we have a good heart towards God, we will want to do these things. Oh, how can I serve someone? How can I be of service to you, Lord? What can I do? You see the difference in attitude? So you see the difference between religion and really freedom in Christ and being born again. And I would say this, when we live these godly precepts, then like Paul, we can look anyone in the eye intently, or better yet, we can look at ourselves in the mirror and like what we see, and then say, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Let's pray.